Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. She's Ann Friedman. She is Aminatu So. Love saying your name. <laughs> Listen, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Also, love um, that we get pronouns in there that way as well. You know, just everything is on the table. Sometimes it all works out, Anne. <laughs> you know what? In these precedented times. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Tell me, what are we talking about today? Uh, I'm so excited about today's episode, which is about asexuality, Angela Chen's book, Ace. The full title is Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. I should also say this is not an episode about big friendship. Summer of friendship has concluded. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. We are moving on. (laughs) Yes. For all of the salty people who were upset, we're back. We're back. Wait, who was upset? Regularly scheduled programming. Were you upset? (laughs) I mean, for me, for me, (laughs) I will only speak for myself. Not that like all of the episodes were not amazing. I was just feeling uh, like a degree of self-consciousness about it. Right. And also just like we spent... July and August in a kind of all friendship all the time mode. So I think particularly for you and me, we are like, we are ready to talk about some other stuff. Right. I'm ready to focus on nemesis now. Like, let's <laughs> let's move on. Oh no my God. more friendship. <laughs> Our nemesis episode, like, could be incredible. Like, we should, we should think about that. We really should. I, do you have a nemesis? No. I really, like, don't, yeah. I don't, I don't play, I like, that is not, I understand how the idea of a nemesis, like, you know, in ways that rock and gay has talked about can be a kind of professional motivator or can be something that is like actually kind of healthy or productive but for me uh it is just never really applied to how i want to live and work it's not it's not useful for me oh you mean shine theory doesn't make room for nemesis (laughs) (laughs) that is like it's like an interesting question right like can you be practicing shine theory in the sense that like you are invested in your people and also have a nemesis like is this is like the outer limits of like discussing the theory what do you think i mean i mean i believe that i am a nemesis but i do not have a nemesis oh oh people are competing with you but you are not competing with anyone else yeah yes (laughs) i only have the stamina and the the interest and also uh you know my my level of trauma all only involves me thinking about myself like i can't think about other people so yeah i just um don't really have a nemesis one reason i don't have a nemesis is because there's not like one person who has everything i want you know it's like i see aspects of things thank you and i'm serious i see aspects of things i want to bring into my life or into my work in like lots of different people and projects and it's like for me to have a nemesis i would have to like really covet or feel in competition with like one individual and i just maybe that person is out but i have i have yet to encounter them or their work i mean for me that person is out there it's just me so that's <laughs> right you are your own nemesis i i yeah, fully I'm relate like, to that yeah i'm my own nemesis i'm my own black swan but also like here's <laughs> here's the truth of it is that anyone who could have even been a nemesis for me um got neutralized by shine theory a long time ago mm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. so 
it's a it truly like that's actually like one of my my favorite friendships are friendships with people where it was like oh yeah we didn't really like each other at the beginning or there was you know like some sort of like unnamed tension and now we're like very good friends so it doesn't matter um, and uh because it just goes to show that like when you actually know someone and you know the reality of their life you like that stuff doesn't matter I have to say, I'm compelled to point out that we turned even a joke about nemeses into a conversation about friendship and shine. Stop theory. it. Stop <laughs> it. Stop it. Gina, cut all of this. Cut all of it. Cut all of it. Thank you. Uh, okay. For real, though, there is a there is a true and genuine topic shift today. Um, we encountered the writer and journalist Angela Chen because an editor we worked with on our book, The Fabulous Carrie Fry, recommended that we check out an early draft of Angela Chen's book Ace, which is a book about asexuality. It is has memoir elements and reporting elements and is also like a, a work of cultural criticism with a strong political bent. And we both thought the book was incredible. And there were parts of it that thematically overlapped with, with what we were writing about. And we interviewed her for our book. But on the whole, it is a it is divergent subject matter, like so excited to say, again, it is not a friendship episode. I chatted with her about the book, which the full title is Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. Can't wait to listen to this. Angela, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I would love to hear you talk about the moment or the time in your life when you first learned about asexuality and you were like, oh, this is a thing. There were two moments because it took me a couple tries to get it right, I think. So the first moment I was in my teens at some point and I went to the AVEN, this website that's kind of the website for asexuality, and it just said, an asexual person is a person who doesn't experience sexual attraction. And I was like, oh, interesting. Good to know. You know, it's another fun, tricky fact. And then I didn't think about it for probably 10 more years. I always respected asexuality. I never thought there was anything weird or bad about it. But reading the definition in no way made me think that it might have anything to do with me. I thought I was like all of my friends at the time, a straight woman, I had not had sex yet, but I was interested in it. And so it just seemed to be something that, in sexuality, it seemed to be something that was about other people, very separate from my life. And then 10 years later, after a couple of relationships, I started thinking, you know, why had I behaved the way I did in certain relationships? Why did Sometimes I feel a little bit removed when other people were talking about sexuality. What were parts of my experience of sexuality that didn't quite align with my friends? And that was what started me thinking again, what is asexuality? Did I maybe not get it right the first time? But between all of that, um, I basically never occurred to me that I was anything but allosexual, which is a term for people who aren't asexual. Right. And that's so interesting how you can read something and think like, oh yeah, like that's a thing, but it, it is does not map onto my experience. Um, because, you know, one thing your book really brought up for me is that, um, you know, we talk a lot about experiences um, related to sex and attraction being really subjective when it comes to the way we relate to others. Like that's why the conversation about consent is so important, you know? Mm -hmm. um, or like that's like a millions of relationship conversations have to do with like how we are all experiencing these things very differently. But often we don't extend that into the 
to the ways that like these labels or experiences are processed like internally and personally, you know, like and how it's sort of like, how do you know that everyone else is seeing what you see when you see the color blue, right? Like it almost is this question about like the nature of how we as humans can never fully know each other's experiences. Not to get like immediately philosophical about where your book took me, but um, I, I don't know. I wonder if that resonates for you. Absolutely. And I think that once you start thinking about your own experiences, you have to get immediately philosophical. The book is about sexuality and relationships, so on, but it's also so much about language, that exact question. So one of one thing is that it's very confusing because the word asexual is so broad and it includes people who have positive sexual experiences. So I have a lot of empathy for people who are like, wait, why? That's not how language works. Why would you? Why would you have that be the umbrella word? So I get it. It's confusing in that way. And the other way is we just talk about so many parts of our lives, including sexuality, in these really broad terms. You know, like when someone says hot. What does that really mean? And that was one of the biggest revelations for me is that, you know, when I was a teenager, we'd be like, oh, this guy's hot. That guy's not hot. But I didn't realize until 10 years later when they said, oh, he's hot, they were experiencing something like this physical attraction to him. And I was like, oh, he has good hair. You know, it wasn't much different looking at a painting of someone who was hot. There was no sexual motivator, but there was no way to tell that the internal experience was different. Mm. Gosh, yeah. And and then, you know, you make this point about language where um, terms like attraction, sex, and romance are so often conflated in our culture. And one thing your book really did for me was help to try to separate those threads. Because I think that like a lot of allosexual people, like a lot of cisgender people, like a lot of um, heterosexual people, like it's been very easy for me to kind of collapse those terms. And I'm, I'm wondering about that process for you. How did you start to separate the ideas that like attraction does not mean the same thing as sex, does not mean the same thing as romance? I think it, for me, it was more like, I had all these muddy ideas in my head. And then once I had this framework presented to me, I was like, oh, this explains questions that I didn't even know I had. So, for example, ACEs separate um, sexual attraction, which we don't experience, from aesthetic attraction, which we do. So aesthetic attraction is basically you can find someone beautiful without that beauty being a sexual motivator. And now that someone had explained it to me, I was like, oh, that makes sense, you know, because I've always had a physical type. My friends are very familiar with it. You know, it's not like everyone looks the same to me in terms (laughs) of attractiveness. And so for a while, I was like, okay, am I really asexual if, like, some people do seem hotter to me? Like, what does that even mean? And so having that framework, I was like, okay, that makes sense. And in the same way, you know, romantic attraction, once people separated sexual attraction, romantic attraction, I was like, yes, this makes sense. It makes total sense that you could be romantically attracted to someone, even if you don't feel, um, you know, sexually attracted to them. It's, It's not like I thought these things through myself. It's like once someone drew this diagram and made it clear to me the things in my life started to fall into place. Mm. What are some of the other terms or labels or clarifications that that felt helpful to you as you started to understand and articulate your own identity? So the main one was the separation of sexual attraction, romantic attraction, aesthetic attraction. I also thought it was really interesting to think about the difference between sexual attraction and sex drive, 
we really conflate those two, right? But if you really think about it, like you can be gay and have a high sex drive. You can be straight and have a low sex drive. There's no reason why those things have to be together, right? And so thinking about them differently, especially with asexual people who can be can asexual and still have a high sex drive, which basically means that they can feel horny, but they don't want to get other people involved. That was like a light bulb moment. And I think many people don't understand that these things are different. Or one thing is thinking more clearly about the difference between romantic love and platonic love. For for most people, it's like, oh, I know that I'm romantically interested in them. I'm romantically attracted because I want to have sex with them. It doesn't matter if you actually are having sex with them. Just the desire is what separates the two, right? But for aces, many people are indifferent to sex or even averse to sex, and they still feel romantically attracted to others. And this is, it's this hazy, confusing space, and I don't have all the answers for what exactly is the difference. But even beginning to make that separation made me question, oh, why do we, why does the separation exist? What would it mean if we thought about it differently? What would it mean if we thought about different types of relationships differently? Yeah, you know, we talked a lot about you and I about attraction while Aminatu and I were writing our book because, you know, this was something that we were trying to suss out as it relates to friendship, right? Like, what does it mean to be very deeply attracted to someone in the sense that you want them in your life? You might even be aesthetically attracted to them, which is a part of our story. We were like, oh my gosh, like, I love her style. Like, I just, I love her taste. I think she's cute. But also, like, the sex piece being missing or this kind of, like, you know, even in our case, like maybe a romantic piece being missing and trying to really find some new language around attraction. I think it's, we've had some interesting conversations, like as we talk about the book with people who both do and don't understand that that word can apply in a lot of contexts. And I'm wondering about some ideas you had going into your reporting process, because there are so many different stories in this book about all the different ways people inhabit their asexual identity. And I'm wondering if you could talk about a story that you heard or, or maybe a couple of them that really broadened your own understanding of like, huh, I had not really thought about it in this way before. I think one story that comes to mind immediately is the story of someone I interviewed whose name is Hunter. And Hunter comes from a very different background than I do. And my background is kind of the typical, you know, really liberal. I've grown up on the coast. I'm not religious at all. And Hunter grew up in a very religious family in the Midwest. And the way he puts it, growing up, nobody talks about sex. But somehow, while no one was talking about sex, everyone got the message that sex was good. It was his gift from God as long as you waited until marriage. And he wanted he wanted that. He wanted what he saw as a superior connection. And so when he was in his 20s in college at some point, he started training himself to resist temptation and not look at people who might be sexually attractive. And he followed all the rules and didn't have sex before he got married when he was 25. And then after that, you know, sex didn't turn out to be what he thought it was. And he couldn't understand why. And it, for years, he really struggled with it. It's not that he struggled with the sex itself. He didn't. He wasn't repulsed by sex. He struggled with the fact that it wasn't what he expected, that it wasn't as big of a deal as he'd been told. And only after he learned about asexuality did it feel to him like all of these parts of his life suddenly make sense. And it made him see his, his past in a new way, too. You know, he, he told me that he would have these friends 
who would give in to temptation and he'd be like, part of me was judgmental. You know, I was like, it's so easy to not have sex. So mm. why would you, why would you take this <laughs> risk? And I just thought that story was so interesting because it was so different because when we think about, um, you know, religious cultures, I think many of us who maybe aren't part of that culture, we immediately think about, you know, purity rings and celibacy and that kind of stuff. And for him, being raised religious actually hid his asexuality in a really interesting way. And so that to me was a story that was unlike many of the ones that I heard about asexuality before writing the book. I've kind of found myself resisting the desire to compare many of the stories in your book to other kinds of LGBTQ coming out stories that I have read and heard in the past. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts about that, about how how does asexuality fit into kind of this large acronym queer umbrella? Curious what that brings up for you. I think there's a lot of nuances in conversation. So I definitely believe that asexuality is part of the umbrella, that aces are queer. But I think that there is a discussion about the extent to which people who are asexual but also heteromantic, you know, they're romantically attracted to this, uh, to the opposite gender, are they really queer? Because oftentimes these aces are so straight passing. So I think that's still a discussion that's happening. And I think that asexuality hold a little a different space you know it's often called the invisible orientation and invisibility in many ways provides protection i think oftentimes aces don't feel as much pressure to come out i think that if you are heteromantic and ace and you're walking down the street holding hands you know you're not going to be a target there's a different set of considerations at the same time i think that public knowledge of asexuality is not nearly at the level of what a public knowledge around other parts of the umbrella. And I think that there are specific challenges associated with coming out as asexual. For example, I, I talk to people who say that they think it's hard for them to come out because it really does feel like you're talking about your sex life. You know, like if you're talking about, oh, maybe I'm um, bisexual or maybe I'm gay, but it sometimes can feel more like you're talking about who you want to be partnered with, you know? But if you're talking about your being asexual, mm. it kind of feels like you're, you're telling people, oh, I, I'm horny or I'm not horny. Like, that kind of feels inappropriate. You know? It feels... It, right, this is how I like to do it or not. Right, yeah. exactly, you know? And that, does, and that just is, can be off-putting for people if they don't understand. And even for me, the funny thing is, if you Google my name, of course, the book will come up and you'll quickly realize I'm asexual. But my parents don't really follow my career, so <laughs> they don't know about it. I don't think I'm out to my parents. I don't know if I really want to talk about this with my parents either, you know? And so there's, there's all these interesting other considerations that come along with, you know, the stories of what it means to come out as ace and how that's easier in some ways and how in some ways you can be incentivized to just never come out because it can almost be easier not to. And you can, and many people can pass in many ways. 
Right. And so and so for you, how does that intersect with politics in as much as all queer identities are political? Um, when you think about asexuality as it relates to the way we make laws and recognize all the ways of being and doing sexuality and relationships in the world, is there something you would like to see taken into consideration if we were really to make asexual people more visible in in our politics? Absolutely. I think with ACEs, the struggle is not necessarily at the level of law. Every once in a while, someone will say like, oh, some states have these consummation laws. We're not really married unless you've had sex. But in reality, I don't think those are the concerns for ACEs. I think it's more on the level of culture and more on the level of norms than a level of discrimination, which has been a fight for other people who are part of the queer umbrella. So, for instance, I think the ACE perspective and consent, you know, who has sexual rights within relationships and who's the one who's broken and who's responsible for fixing, quote unquote, their sex drive. I think that's a big discussion that we should be having. And that's not a discussion that's just for ACE people. I think that's a discussion about sexual rights that affects everyone. Or when we talk about health and sexuality, and there's so many narratives around sex being healthy, that somehow morphs into this narrative that not having sex means you're not healthy, which isn't the same thing. There's this medicalization of sex where sex is so normalized, and so people try to sell you these pharmaceuticals because you're broken. And I think those are the types of conversations we'd be changing, like that's the kind of activism. Or talking about sex education for people who are in middle school, high school. I interviewed someone who had blood tests on in high school because she heard all these messages like, oh, you will definitely want to have sex. It's like that scene in Mean Girls, you know, like you will want sex and you will have it. And she mm. felt so alienated and she was like, I think I'm sick. I think whatever, I have cancer. This is like a side effect of cancer. It's a side effect of a tumor. And so she, she thought that she was actually going to die. And this is the kind of thing that could be fairly easily avoided by incorporating sexuality into sex ed because it's so hidden right now, but it doesn't have to be. And some changes will take a lot of effort, like changing norms around consent, but some changes like incorporating asexuality sex ed, I don't think will take nearly as much. Yeah. I mean, as I hear you talk about that, I'm, I'm really thinking about a lot of the conversations I've had in my own life about how air quotes here, like sex positive feminism affected people I know, particularly people who identify as women and who who were maybe raised with this idea, like exactly like you said, like if I am not really seeing having sex as a site of liberation, then I am like not doing feminism right. And I feel like, you know, when I hear you talk about that, I'm like, oh yeah, like also the culture of our activism and like corners of the world that are not just, you know, what what we may think of as like sanctioned sex ed in schools, but even those of us who like to think of ourselves as like progressive in the ways we talk about this could also do some hard looks at the things we've internalized. I mean, I definitely came of age in that, in that kind of soup too. Absolutely. And I... And it affected me a lot, you know? And, of course, I will be the first to say that sex is political and sex shouldn't exist. And, of course, repression is real and people are shamed out of being in touch with sexuality. But somehow that changes the idea that the only reason that maybe you don't love sex is because of some kind of repression or the impact of patriarchy. And that's not true. And I think that creating that message can be alienating for people who are really loyal and to, you know, liberal politics and feminism, but feel like they're being asked to 
perform in a way that doesn't feel natural to them and isn't what they want. Oh, yes. Yes to that. And and really like to more nuance in general, you know, I have really taken a lot from the it feels almost wrong to call it like a big tent or a large umbrella for all these different ways of experiencing, you know, asexuality or living it and room for nuance. How do we make it? <laughs> yeah, room for nuance. And of course, where does the community go now? Because it really has been 20 years since the sexual orientation still emerged. And for many years, the discussion was always, we want to be visible. We want to be in the culture. But now I think there's more of a discussion where it's like, well, how visible are we really? How important is visibility? Where has that gotten us? And do we care about being visible? Do we need to show that we're normal? Is there, should we be more separatist? Like there's all of these continuing evolving questions around the place of asexuality in politics and culture and where that's going. Uh, yeah, and when you think about places where um, asexuality does show up in culture now, you know, whether it's books or TV or music, what comes to mind for you? Are there places where you felt you've seen yourself reflected? I don't think there's places where I've seen myself reflected. I think the, you know, hands down most impactful example was Todd Chavez from Bojack. You know, you meet another ace person and, mm. you know, the first thing you ask is like, oh, how did you discover you were ace? And the second thing you ask is, oh, what did you, what did you think of Bojack Horseman? You know, it's like such a cultural touch point. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for it because I really, you know, it did great educational work. And I think it made more people realize they were ace who might never have found the community online or in any other way. I still feel dissatisfied with it not because of anything they did wrong, but to me, it represents how far we still need to go. It had kind of a, you know, after school special feel to it, which is completely necessary because you can't have an a storyline without setting up the base, basics of what asexuality is. But if you're spending so much time setting up the basics, then your storyline can't go that deep, I think. And so I want to see it go deeper. And I don't know if we're there yet. Right. There's sort of like a baseline cultural literacy required to have a non-101 conversation. Exactly. And I think nothing exists in a vacuum. So one thing I think about a lot is the book A Little Life. Have you read it by any chance? I have not read A Little Life, but I'm familiar with it. Right. So one of the characters, Jude, is, um, I think, arguably asexual. And he is also a survivor of sexual violence. And these things are connected. And because there are people who are asexual, who are survivors of sexual violence, I think it's good to claim him. But the issue is, because there's so many misconceptions about asexuality otherwise, you know, if Jude were to somehow become the face of asexuality in modern fiction, then many people would get the idea that asexuality is always connected to sexual trauma. And then it would just be another misconception that would get around, you know? Like, even if you're trying hard right. to have representation, it's so hard when you don't have just the basic, you know, bedrock platform of understanding to correct anything that might go wrong. Like, when there's so little representation, any one character matters too much. Totally. Um, also, on that level of kind of like getting beyond the 101, I'm, I'm wondering um, what you see as some of the live debates or issues among you and other ACE folks right now. I know you mentioned this question about how visible do we want or need to be, but I'm wondering if there are other things that are happening below that just like, hello, this is, this is an identity <laughs> level or deeper than that, I guess I should say. I... So I don't know how much of a discussion this is at large, but for me, I think 
there's the question of how much do we do we need to explain ourselves uh, to allies, and to what extent should we maybe try to change the culture in order to reach more ace people? You know, a subculture, like all subcultures, has a specific aesthetic. There's specific colors, and it's also very young. And many aspects of that mean that it's inaccessible to people, you know, because it's so online, for example. Many people who are older might not be able to access it. Or there is also a reputation for asexuality being very white, and so that can be alienating in other ways. And so this question of do we, to me at least, should we be changing the culture somehow to reach more people, or is, is that not important? Like, how do, we, how do we balance these things? You know, the importance of the culture that's developed versus spreading the culture. Right. I, I mean, when I hear questions like that, I think almost like it has to be a both and, right? Like, I know there's only so many hours in a day, but those things feel so related to me, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does have to be a both and. I think, I don't think that, you know, AC should cater to allos. I think the question is almost more, how do we bring more people in who may be ace themselves, right? And to me, they're just slightly different things. But definitely, I don't think that the culture needs to change to be diluted or dumbed down, but I think at the same time, every community, every organization can be doing more to be more inclusive. And of course, this isn't just an ace thing, right? I think, I think every movement has always struggled with these problems, these questions. Right. And when you, when you think about the audience for your book, do you, do you think about it as, you know, being read by allos like me who are, you know, interested, but it's also serving this kind of educational function? Do you see it as, you know, writing to other aces? I mean, I, I would love to hear you talk about that in context of what you just said. I see it as both. You know, typically I'll say, you know, there's the ace audience and there's the allo audience. But the funny thing is it's not a binary. You know, even in the times that I first published an excerpt, people have reached out to me and they said, oh, I thought I knew what asexuality was. But reading this excerpt made me realize it's actually broader than how it's been portrayed. And maybe mm. I'm asexual. So, you know, there are allo people out there who will we think they're allo, but mm. maybe you're not allo, so it's not a binary. <laughs> but the other thing is I do see them as distinct audiences, and I do think that there is there are different messages for each. So I'm sure some people who are ace will be like, well, I, I know the basics. What, what can I learn from the book? But even if you're ace, that doesn't mean you know everything about what it's like to be certain types of ace. Uh, not that I do either. But for example, if you're white, then maybe you don't know what it's like to be an ace of color or uh, someone who's ace and disabled. And in many places, I'm critical of the ace community and what I see as some early attempts at gatekeeping or a lack of diversity. So I think there's a lot there. And I've spoken to a lot of ace people about the book, and I think they agree that it goes beyond, you know, the 101. And for ours too, definitely, they are an important audience. Because I think that if Allos understood the ace lens, it would just be another tool and another way to see the world. I hope that when Allos are reading the book or, you know, even listening to this interview, they start thinking, oh, so if sexual attraction is different from romantic attraction, what does that mean for me? You don't have to be ace to use that model, you know? You don't have to be ace to think about things from an ace framework, and you might discover something about yourself that you didn't know or see the world in a new way. 
One thing I want to talk to you about before you go is this this uh, concept of queer platonic because it's something that we, um, Aminatu and I, were super interested in as we read your book. But I would love to hear you talk about the origin of the term queer platonic and what it describes. Absolutely. So obviously, as your book describes, and as I think everyone would agree, in society, friendships just does not receive the same amount of respect or centrality in our lives as romance does. And that is something that I think many people feel, even if they haven't explicitly articulated that. And in the ace community, where many people are aromantic, meaning that they might love their friends very much and their family, but they're not romantically attracted to others, I think there was also a sense of urgency and a sense of alienation. So in 2010, two journalists came up with the term queer platonic, Essie Smith and Kaz. And the idea is that it's about the in-between space. Because in our lives, and this goes back to language, right? We have so few terms for the role people play. We have family member and partner and friend and acquaintance, and there's just not much beyond that. And all of those are so broad. So for some people, they genuinely feel differently about their queer platonic partner than they do about either a friend or romantic partner. But for other people, I think it's it's like a name for a new type of bond because when you have a friend, you kind of have all these expectations about what a friend is. And when you have a romantic partner, you have all of these assumptions, whether you explicitly know them or not about what a romantic partner is supposed to be and supposed to do and what that's supposed to look like. But when you have a queer platonic partner, what is that supposed to look like? I don't know because we don't see that modeled. And so when people began using the term and using it with other people, it, it was almost a way to affirm, you know, the importance of these other relationships in their lives. And it was also a way to allow them to build new relationships. So people have decided that they're queer platonic partners. What does that mean? What are the terms of our emotional commitment to each other? What do we call ourselves? How do we want to see each other? How often do we want to see each other? And these are questions that we don't really ask in any relationship other than romantic relationships. It's, it's just so interesting to me to see people borrowing from the language of romance and putting that importance in other parts of their lives. And I think queer platonic is a tool that allows them to do that. Mm. Yes, I love that. And I also found those to be, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful stories in your book, but in particular, the stories about queer platonic bonds were really very moving to me, maybe for obvious reasons, given um, my on the record interests. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, they were great. Um, I want to give you a chance to um, shout out places where listeners can find your work um, or anything that you might recommend beyond ACE. I mean, obviously we're going to tell everyone to buy your book, um, but anything you would recommend beyond ACE as like a resource for learning more about asexuality. Absolutely. So the best way to find all my stuff is just definitely Twitter, which has links to everything else. So my handle is Tangela, C-H-E-N-G-E-L-A. And in terms of other resources, The Invisible Orientation by Julie Sandra Decker. And I thought that was a wonderful book. And for those who are more academically inclined and want to get deep into the academic research on this, there's a wonderful anthology called Asexuality, Queer, and Feminist Perspectives. It might be Asexuality, Feminist, and Queer Perspectives, but if you Google those words, it'll come up. It's a very academic list list in the title. <laughs> yes, yes, very much. 
Well, Angela, thank you so much. Thank you for this book and for this conversation. Thank you for having a conversation with me and a lot of fun. Ah, Angela, I love it. I love it so much. We've been thinking and talking through so many of these topics, like specifically about like desire and identity. And it's so important to have like another lens to see the world. I feel like I've I've just learned so much through Angela's work and I'm so grateful she was on today's show. Me too. And I also love the real nuance that work like hers insists that we bring to understanding of things that are often flattened. You know, I mean, I think a lot about how using the long LGBTQIA acronym is useful in some ways, but in other ways, like does not allow for the kind of exploration into all the ways those different identities are lived and expressed. And so I found this book so immensely valuable in terms of examining some of these questions in my own life and experience, you know, even though I do not identify as asexual. So strong plug to read it for people of all identities. The book is out on Tuesday. If you're listening to this episode on the day it drops, you can buy it where you buy books, i.e. your independent bookseller, get it from the library. Again, it's called Ace. I will see you on the internet, boo-boo. See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review, you know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Ring. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. Our producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. <laughs>